Our Old Testament reading is from Leviticus chapter 19. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. And you shall not lie to one another. And you shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not steal. And you shall not keep for yourself the wages of a laborer until the morning. You shall not revile the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not profit by the blood of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate in your heart anyone of your kin. You shall reprove your neighbor or you will incur guilt yourself. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew chapter 5, 38 to 48. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, Give your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Give to everyone who begs from you, and do not refuse anyone who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ.
Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on uh, these somewhat familiar words of Jesus, that you would help us to know how we might apply them to our lives, our own hearts, our own community, our own places in the world in which we find ourselves amidst people that do harm, and um, sometimes as those who do harm ourselves, and amidst enemies, would you help us to know how we might love as we have been loved by Jesus, we ask in his name, amen. So a number of years ago, I remember reading a little book that Lauren Winner had written. Uh, it was a book, she, she's a writer, a professor of, at, at Duke Divinity School, and um, she uh, was writing or talking about what, as, as I'm remembering it, what she called discordant readings of scripture, this practice of discordant reading. Now, in one sense, we are always only ever doing discordant readings of scripture because, right, we live in a broken world, a world that is not as it will be, not as it's promised to be, uh, and so we're always reading the words of Jesus, for example, in, in a world that just contradicts it over and over and over again, that's sowing other words uh, for us. But this practice of discordant reading is when you very intentionally, right, read the words of Christ or the words of the gospel, some teaching of Jesus in a context that feels most discordant. In other words, it just stirs it up so that you can't avoid the contradictions and the discord. So, for example, she would say, if you want to read something that Jesus has written about money or about debt forgiveness or about the poor, maybe the best place for us to read is not in the church where it's easy to forget the contradictions, but we actually go into those spots of the world. You go into a bank. Maybe if you live in New York you, or you're visiting New York, you go down to Wall Street and you read those words, or you go into some gated community and you read those words because it's there that we begin to experience the discord. Or to pull this into a more contemporary moment, if you want to read what Jesus says about the breath of life or about the healing touch, we should look to the COVID ward as a space in which we read these promises and these hopes of Jesus. This morning, as we read Jesus's words about peacemaking, and particularly the way it takes shape for us amongst, amongst the most difficult people for us to love and to embrace, that is those individuals that have harmed us in some way, or on the other hand, this broader category of people that we might be tempted to label sort of an enemy in maybe our most honest and vulnerable moments. Our reading this morning is discordant. And the reason it is discordant is because we're sitting with these words of Jesus about peacemaking in a profound cultural moment in which the culture war is so ramped up, so escalated, political hatred and suspicion, racial uh, injustice, police brutality, white supremacy. Just last week, there was an article in the New York Times about new outbursts of violence against members of the Asian community in different parts of our country. Why? Around the celebration of the Lunar New Year, because the, the violence around them have been stirred up by so much social commentary about COVID and its origins. It's all very sad and traumatizing enough, but the same divisions spill over inside of the church as well. We read about those in the newspapers as well as we think about how the white evangelical church in particular is divided, or we even think about our own experiences with people that we're close to. And it's so ramped up that some of you said, hey, we, we need a space to process 
the way we're experiencing division in our own families of origin. So we've tried to be a place where we can think about Jesus' words of peacemaking in the context of division. Now, given all that, what is Jesus' teaching this morning as you listen to those words being read? What does it awaken within you? What does it stir up within you? Does it stir up the kind of nonviolent response that Jesus has in mind? Does it stir up the practice of loving enemies as Jesus clearly has in mind? Or does it sort of leave you with a sort of a stewing sense of anger because you know that there are enemies that you would label as such? Does it leave you with a sense of disgust, like who would want to do that? Does it leave you with a sense of cynicism about the very possibility of what Jesus is talking about as being remotely achievable in a world like ours? Or does it actually stir up and awaken the slumbering potential of hope, right? The curiosity about the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing and actually that he's bringing us along into. So let's think about these words. So first, the people that harm us. And let me offer one caveat as we go here. And I think it's just important when we read these words of Jesus that we remember that this is a sort of a broad brushstroke of teaching, right? Jesus is giving us this 20,000-foot view, if you will. Uh, and all of these, this teaching is always meant to be worked out in the particulars of human life, particularly if you are an individual that's experienced dramatic, traumatic harm to you. I just want to caution you and encourage you to be a part of community and a part of the kind of loving relationships in which you can sort of process and sort out what does it mean for you to forgive those who harm you and what does it mean for you to sort of extend the olive branch towards an enemy. But do that in the context of community. Don't simply sit with these words alone by yourself um, in your own pain, if if you will. So in this text, Jesus calls to mind the well-known saying of wisdom where he says here, you've heard it said, but I say to you, right? You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now think about this as a statement of wisdom and law for just a moment. It's a wise law. Why? Because of the human propensity, right, that each of us lives with to sort of ramp up and escalate violence that we've even experienced. The tendency for us is to fall into the trap of wanting to get back more or something that exceeds the scope of the original harm. And so what's in view here with this very helpful saying is that, look, don't let the the sort of the vengeance that you seek or the, the, the punishment that you seek or the payback that you seek to don't let it exceed that of the original crime. Right. And, and that's maybe sometimes it feels like the best we can do in a world like ours. But here Jesus wants more. (laughs) He wants his kingdom to be more than that, more than the limitation, right? More than a, a wall around sort of our propensity toward feuding and violence and retaliation. Jesus wants us to love as he loves. And so he says, don't resist the evildoer. N.T. Wright translates this, don't use violence to resist evil. In other words, some equivalent consequence inside of punishment and crime is still cut from the same cloth of this broken world. It's not reflective of the world that is to come. It's not reflective of the world that Jesus is bringing. It confines violence, but it does not heal it. 
Jesus pushes our imagination further, right? So if someone strikes you, uh, turn the other cheek. Now, this is likely a metaphor that calls to mind some physical act of shaming in which someone takes their hand and with the backward slap, slaps you across the face. And you know that that's more than just physical injury. That is shaming. It's the kind of act that is meant to put you in a place other than the place that the perpetrator perceives you trying to stand in. It's a demeaning and a degrading act that Jesus calls to mind. Or he calls someone to think about the incidents of being sued for something here, a shirt, and perhaps we're meant to understand this as a context of, of debt. <laughs> you live in the world of debt, and so the, uh, the person that you owe seeks to get back what they can get back. So they take you to court, and they sue for your shirt because it might just be enough. And maybe if you've gone into debt, and this is your circumstance of being dragged into court, maybe this is literally the shirt off your back and your only shirt. And Jesus says, extraordinarily, offer them your cloak as well. Offer them the only other piece of clothing that you have, such that in that context you become naked, but you become unashamed because you're loving as Jesus loves, you're caring as Jesus cares, you're offering a kind of integrity that you're not being offered yourself. This is the kingdom come that Jesus invites us to turn towards, to repent towards. And in returning, right, as we turn from the violence of our world, sometimes violence that we receive, we're called to turn toward the reality of this kingdom of love. And the amendment of life that happens in that space of repentance is that, right, the same kind of nonviolent response that we experience from Jesus, we begin to take up in the world itself as we take up our cross and we follow him into the context of our ordinary human lives. Secondly, what about enemies? These are persons of such difference, real or sometimes imagined hostility, right, that, uh, that we have little or no desire to make room for in our lives. So just call that person to mind right now. Who's your enemy? You know, it's interesting. We've just come through this horrific political season in which everyone tried to make the other an enemy. Republicans, Democrats, everybody played in that same sort of game, didn't they? Here Jesus invites us to think about our real enemies. Who are they? Who do you perceive as against you? Who do you perceive as less than you? Who do you tend to dehumanize in your effort to keep them at bay, the other? Jesus sees here, he says, but I say to you, right, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. He sees, in other words, a kind of transformative love that is operative in the community of his people that becomes demonstrative of the fact that we actually belong to God and the way that he loves in the world. That's what Jesus invited his hearers then to hear. And he connects that at the very end of our text with this notion of perfection which we shouldn't sort of identify as moral perfection per se, but perfection in the way of love, perfection in the way of God's love, perfection in the way of Jesus's love. And this is where he invites us to move with the whole of our lives. Human beings are interesting in that we have a pretty sad history with regard to enemies. 
You pick up any history book from any period of time and from any people, from any cultural setting, and one of the things that you'll discover is that we're really good at sustaining enemy boundaries. <laughs> we're really good at identifying the enemy and keeping them at bay. It sometimes feels easier to have an enemy as a scapegoat because it becomes a way for us to carve out an identity for ourselves, and sometimes we even talk about the need of an enemy, a common enemy. Human beings struggle to love in the way of God. Our history reflects the opposite. And that struggle even spills over time and time again into the history of the church. You know, I really wish that I could say, you know, Christians have this down. It would be so beautiful and so wonderful to say we sort of hold on to the love of Jesus, and we manifest the love of Jesus. But the reality is that the church's history across time as well is littered with the same practices of enemy-making, of enemy-sustaining, of holding up the enemy. And it's not just that we think of some outsider, someone outside of the church as an enemy, some oppositional space, but it even comes internal to the church. Some of us have been in denominations long enough or been in enough denominations, which is sort of my story, in which I realize that it doesn't matter where you are in each context of worship, the church is often eager to divide up around some new cause some piece of theology that has suddenly become so very important to us, some notion that we forget to look across the aisle and recognize that our neighbor is actually peering at, looking at, gazing upon the same Jesus that we seek to gaze upon. From the earliest days of Christian life, the church was a gathering, D.A. Carson says, of natural-born enemies, not natural friends. He said that a number of years ago, and I remember still the first time I heard the quote, and it was so provocative to me. Why? Because we know that our experience of being Christian today in our world, and certainly in the context of the United States, is that we gather among friends, that we gather with people that are very much like ourselves. In other words, we, we don't sort of live in that space of discordant life where we're with the other. But from the very beginning of Christianity, it was cross-cultural. It was cross-ethnic. It was cross-socioeconomic. And not as a matter of design per se, but simply because these were the very people that were beginning to listen to Jesus and turn toward the reality of his good kingdom. And so maybe there's a super wealthy person in that congregation that would gather, but there's also a slave. And maybe there are the stratification of men and women and all of the ways that their society, social life affected and shaped their identity and their sense of being persons in that room. Or maybe there's just all of this diversity and there's, there are Jewish persons who are following Jesus and Gentile persons who are following Jesus. And there are persons attached even to the oppressor Rome that are now following Jesus. How did they get along? They were just ordinary individuals caught up in the brokenness of our world, its inequalities, its stratifications, its prejudices, its factions, 
It's manipulation and abuse of power and on and on and on. But these were individuals who heard the story of who Jesus was in his love, and they started to become curious about him. How do they get along? How do they live in the midst of that complexity? No early gathering of the church had the luxury of sameness, the luxury of gathering on the basis of friendship. The common uniting factor of their gathering was Jesus and his love for them. He had called them together as a community of his people, the body of Christ. And as a consequence, these individuals would have to suddenly discover in themselves their lack of loveliness. Have you ever been in those kinds of long-term sustained relationships in which you, you, you're, you're drawn initially even to some attraction, right? There's something attractional. This is particularly often true in the context of our married lives or even our friendships. But the longer you stay together and persevere in relationship, you suddenly begin to realize, oh, well, I, we're not really alike. You're hard. I'm hard. And you begin to discover that there's a depth of brokenness internal to yourself that Jesus is inviting us to wake up to as the theater in which his love is making a difference in how we are reconciled, not only to God, but also to ourselves. And not only to ourselves, but also to our neighbor. And not only to our neighbor, but to our natural-born enemies. These are tough sayings of Jesus. And he invited the church of his day, those that were just beginning to listen to the coming of the kingdom as he articulated and the call to repentance, he's inviting them to a kind of transformational life that only his love can provide and create. Rowan Williams in a little book that he's written about Benedictine spirituality, and particularly in a section where he's thinking about the vow of stability, which is a practice among the monks in which they would sort of commit to staying put, that they wouldn't sort of move from community to community to community to community. Why? Because it was in the context of these stable relationships that we actually have find the courage and the opportunity to tell more deeply into our own stories. In this particular book, he's writing a section in which he's describing or asking the question of what is the currency of the communities that we inhabit? So in other words, he says that we all need a common language, right? So that when I speak or you speak, we all know, oh, we're on the same page. We have some medium of exchange internal to all of our communities. He describes listening to one Christian leader, a priest, talk about his experience inside of a, of a particular community. And as he's listening to sort of the practices of that community and the stories that are told in the community, not the official ones, but the ones that happen around coffee when we're allowed to have coffee. He said what the person discovered was that the currency of their community was grievance that what they shared all the time was a story of grievance. This is what I'm upset about. This is how I've been hurt. These are my struggles. Grievance, grievance, grievance. And he said what he realized was that we were sowing grievance in the community so that when we got together, the, thing that we, the way we knew we were on the same page is you had a grievance and you brought it forward. That's not to be, you know, not to suggest that we don't have grievances. We don't need to talk about them. 
But what is the currency of the community of God's people? Jesus was in our world sowing goodness, kindness, generosity, truth-telling, welcome, hospitality, love for enemies, the least of these, but also the offending enemy. Love like that is the common language of the kingdom of God. It's the medium of exchange within the kingdom of God. Think about that in the context of Jesus' own life for just a moment as we close. Play this forward, in other words, this love of Jesus that he's sowing across the spaces of his life. And what do we end up with? Where do we end up with the consequences of his sowing? Well, Jesus was subject to dramatic abuses of power. He was subject to betrayal. He was falsely accused. He was judged wrongly. He experienced physical violence even. He was jabbed. He was slapped. He was shamed. He was subject to the most traumatizing and torturous forms of capital punishment in the history of humanity. Miroslav Volf says that when God embraces his enemy, that the result is the cross. So there is Jesus with outstretched arms, sowing love and sowing forgiveness unto the very end of his life. He refuses to call, right, the legions of angels at his disposal to come and rescue him from the cross. He just simply becomes the scapegoat of humanity. And instead, he asks the Father to forgive those who are taking his life unjustly, His clothing is divided among the soldiers, and so Jesus is naked and unashamed in the midst of our world of violence. You see, the peace that Jesus invites us to is not temporary. It's more than the cessation in battle. It's more than like you hit pause in an argument. It is reconciliation to its core. And so what do we do as the body of Christ? Week after week, we try to, whenever we're gathered in person or even now as we gather uh, sort of through the the medium of technology, right? We, We gather to the Lord's table. And why do we do this except to remember that while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled by Christ's death. We were reconciled to God We're reconciled to a much truer expression of our own human identity and our own selves. We're reconciled to one another. And the currency, right, of love sown in our hearts for the sake of the world is sown in our hearts for the sake of the world and for the sake even of our enemies. That's what Jesus is teaching us about here. So let me encourage you this week as you think about your enemies. Who are they? Are they Republicans? Are they Democrats? Are they Trumpers? Are they the poor? Are they the rich? And we could just go on and on and on at all of the different lines that we draw around the other. So in that moment when God by his Holy Spirit brings those individuals to mind or those categories of people to mind, Maybe just simply practice what Jesus urges us to to hear. Pray for those who persecute you. So what would it look like to be in the presence of God, sowing love as he has sown love in your heart?
for your neighbor and for your enemy. May God give us grace to hear what the Spirit says to the church. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The offering's a time when we very appropriately think on those things that we're hearing and thinking about in connection with Scripture that the Spirit is bringing to minds. We offer our hearts, our lives, our bodies, our gifts up to God. Let's do that now.